Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. It's good to be in the house of God. Amen. I was told this morning there's going to be thunderstorm. I was a little worried about that, but thank God we are able to just come in without an umbrella. So that's wonderful. I just want to welcome everyone and those who are watching online. And as you know, that we are on a tour, the Colossians, that's how I like to call it. And believe it or not, we are on the 12th day of our tour. I'm counting the number of days. It's been great, 12th day of our tour. And today we are going to look at four verses, the last four verses in chapter 2. So I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles, please, to chapter 2. But let's remind ourselves of the context. Now what is happening here, there's a serious issue that is going on in the church in Colossae. And it's a false teaching slowly permeating into the church. And in order for us to relate to this study so that we can really appreciate we need to understand what heretical teaching really means in our modern day life. Otherwise, this can be just conceptual things. It happened once upon a time. What does that really mean? So I just want you to please come along with me carefully. It's more than teaching. I, I would say it's more teaching than preaching today. So please follow along very carefully. So let me quickly give you at least four heresies that prevailed in the first century Greco-Roman world which are quite not dead yet. So the first one, I'll go through this very quickly. The first one is the heresy of Judaizers. So it simply is good deeds or efforts contribute to salvation. So something other than the union with Christ was necessary for salvation. You know, church, sadly, believe it or not, the, the Ligonia revealed that their survey shows 36% of self-identified evangelicals believed that by the good work, good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. 36%. So what is your view of salvation? Let's bring it home. Understand what our view is. Secondly, is the heresy of Gnosticism. So it's actually, in, in this particular heresy, it says all physical matter was evil and all spiritual were good. So therefore, it was unthinkable for the heretical teachers, this is what they were preaching, that God would actually take upon human flesh. It was unthinkable. This belief also led to a severe form of asceticism, and that's what you're going to look at today, is a punishing the flesh. Or, hear me out, on the other side is licentiousness. It's since physical had no connection with the eternal, you live as you please. Just do it. If you like it, just do it. And you know what? We are seeing that today in the modern world. We are seeing that today. And licenses people look upon God's grace and say his kindness does away with law. So we are free to do as we please. 
Thirdly, the, it's, it's, this is actually tied up with Gnosticism. It's called Docetism. So Docetism allowed that Jesus may have been in some way divine, but it denied the, his full humanity. So in other words, for these heretical teachers are saying that Jesus was, was a, a phantasm or a ghost or an illusion, appearing to be human, but having no body at all. So if Jesus did not have a body according to this heretical teaching, then he did not really die. His suffering on the cross was mere illusion. So if Jesus had no physical body, he could not have risen bodily from the dead. So that's another one, and you still hear it, people speaking on that. And the last one I just want to pick up is the heresy of prosperity gospel. Now, Piper put it, put it this way, the prosperity gospel is an idolatrous perversion of the gospel. Church, many times we don't really realize that we are sometimes tempted or swayed by some of these teachings. Now, this saying that Jesus is a means to God's full blessings, primarily the wealth, health, and power. That's what prosperity gospel is all about. And is now available, listen carefully, to those who trust and obey. So, so far it looks good. But I want you here, come along with me. To obey, to obey certain faith principles prescribed by a particular man of God. That's what prosperity uh, gospel is all about. It's about an individual maybe prescribing what you should be trusting and what you should be obeying. I'm going to give you an example very quickly. And how do you read this? Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. If you read carefully, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap... I tell you how the prosperity preachers use this verse. They promise their followers greater, greater rewards for those who give greater amounts of money to the preacher and the church. They take this passage, and that's how they interpret it. And if you are not deep into the word, you tend to believe it. Because it looks right. It looks good. But if you go to the next verse, and I'm going to show that to you, if you go to the next verse, verse number 8, the sowing, what he's talking about, hear me out, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will reap, will, will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The sowing here is doing good. That's what the sowing is all about. It's not about giving money. The reaping for doing good is eternal life. That's what he's talking about here. This verse has nothing to do with money. But sadly, today there are lots of TV evangelists who thrive on this heretical teaching today. The, these are some of the heretical teaching that the church in Colossae is facing. I hope you can now relate yourselves to the problems of the church in Colossae. So in this chapter, as we are studying chapter 2, Paul is actually addressing the various heretical teaching, threatening the Colossian church. In chapter 2, so far we have looked at 
Paul is warning the saints in Colossae against the spiritual deception, against philosophy, against ceremonialism, against legalism and mysticism we looked at last time. And today we are going to look at a warning against ascetic living. And I'm going to explain this in a minute. As a means of being godly. For you to be godly, there is a way to live. That's what Paul is talking about here. So Paul is telling us that asceticism is not how you become godly. He is contradicting that, a heretical teaching. The false teachers in Colossae had a system of rules which they imposed on their followers. They said that if you keep these rules, you will have victory over fleshly desires. So what they did was they took some of the Old Testament regulations concerning ceremonial cleanliness and diet and added to them much as the Pharisees had done. Now Paul admits these kind of teachings, church, this is where we had to pay close attention in verse uh, 23, the latter part of it, Paul, Paul says that these rules had the appearance of wisdom. If you are not careful as you hear the heretical teachers saying something, yeah, it looks right. There's an appearance of wisdom. But he adds the latter part of this verse. We are going to come back to this later. They are of no value against fleshly indulgence. This is a new King James Version. NIV says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And I love the contemporary version, English version. No power over our desires. That's what he says. All these heretical teachings, all this ascetic living has no power over our desires. That's what Paul is saying. That's how he's concluding. So Paul, in essence, is saying that godliness is not achieved through asceticism, but through our identification with Christ. So let us dive into today's text now. Is verse 20. And you heard the passage being read. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? So Paul is actually asking a rhetorical question. If you truly died with Christ and were raised up with Him, why are you going back not just to the Old Testament law, but even worse, to man-made rules added to the law. That's what Paul is asking here. For us to get to the gist of it, we need to understand what asceticism is. Otherwise, you'll never understand this. I told you I'm going to explain that to you. So let us take a moment to understand what asceticism is so that we can appreciate what Paul is saying here. We can relate to that type of behavior even today. So once again, before I go into what asceticism is, let me establish the key point here. Paul says godliness is not achieved through asceticism. That's what Paul is saying here. So what is asceticism? So if commonly you go to a dictionary to see what it is, and as you look at the dictionary, this is what it says. The Webster would say that relating to or having a strict and simple way of living that avoids physical pleasure. The Oxford American Dictionary defines it slightly differently, but the same content, characterized by severe 
self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Wow. That's what asceticism, that's how they define it. Church, then you may ask me a question, Pastor, wait a minute. If asceticism is self-denial, as we can read from here, isn't it what the Bible is teaching us? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Because Paul says he disciplined his body and made it his slave. And Paul instructed Timothy, he said, to endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, and he said to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. Self-discipline, self-denial. And, and self-control is one characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? And Jesus said that self-denial is an essential requirement for following him. Matthew 16, 24. So what is the difference between the asceticism that Paul attacks in our text and the biblical self-denial or self-discipline? If you don't understand that, it will not make sense to us what Paul is trying to say. So let me present a few contrasts here to consider. Firstly, asceticism sees the body as evil, to be totally suppressed. It teaches that matter is evil, but the spirit is good. Therefore, we must treat our bodies harshly. That's what asceticism is. But self-control sees the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So thus we need to take care of our bodies to glorify God with them. To do this, we need to exercise control over what we eat and drink, over harmful substances such as tobacco and, and drugs and so on, over sexual impulses. That's the first thing that we see. Secondly, asceticism Thank you. As it is submitting my body to my will. To my will. I am in charge. I tell my body what to do. But self-discipline is actually submitting to yourself to God's will. That's the difference. One is to my will, other one is to God's will. So the ascetics operate on willpower. His goal is to bring his body under the control of his mind and spirit. A great example, I don't want to go into details of this, you can read it, but Mahatma Gandhi's ludicrous experiment that he had to prove that he has self-control. And you can read it out, he had, well, I don't want to go into details, but I want, I, it's those kind of experiments that you want to try out. Do I have self-control? But the Bible talks about to glorify God, our self-denial or self-control is to glorify God by bringing my whole being into submission to Him. That's how it is. So it is to renounce my control of my life to give that control willingly to Christ. Thirdly, when you talk about asceticism, it's, it says that it labels all material things as evil. Ascetics cannot enjoy material things. They teach that pleasurable enjoyment is wrong. Why are you laughing? Why are you happy? Why are you dancing? It's wrong. 
But biblical self-discipline properly uses and enjoys the things of the world. That's what we learn in this passage. So Paul teaches us, even to Timothy he wrote, richly supplies us, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And Paul further said in 1 Timothy 4, 4, for everything created by God is good. He said it's good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. That's what Paul is saying here. So Christians can rightly enjoy all of life under the Lordship of Christ, including a good meal, the beauty of God's creation, that everything that God has given, and the sexual relationship within marriage. God has given it to us to enjoy. So, so it's all our pleasure. The fourth one that we look at in asceticism is that asceticism is restrictive. It emphasizes all things you cannot do. Do not touch this. Do not taste this. Do not handle this. You heard being read earlier by Brother Bruno. Don't do this. Don't do that. It leads to restrictive, tyrannical kind of life. Whereas biblical self-discipline leads to greater freedom. The key is liberty church. It means we are freed from the penalty of sin. We are freed from the power of sin. We are freed from the constriction of the Jewish law and sacrificial system because we are governed by His grace and grace alone. God's laws are now written in our hearts through the Spirit of God. And we are free to follow and serve Christ in ways that pleases and glorifies Him. And fifthly, we talk about asceticism, they are man-made commands. But whereas when you look at the, our self-commands, self-discipline is about God's, obeying God's commands. The ascetics, Paul says, that these false teachers were promoting commandments and teachings of men. Ascetics add things to the Bible in an attempt to be spiritual. Now, this is what Jesus told the Pharisees. He says, but in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You take the precepts of men and you teach as if they are the doctrines. They are man-made, not God's commandments. In the Ten Commandments, God said to keep the Sabbath day holy, isn't it? But the Pharisees came up with over 600 detailed commands to specify what they thought it meant. So biblical self-discipline distinguishes between what God commands and what men add to God commands. Sixthly, asceticism is often motivated by gaining acceptance from God. How do you gain acceptance from God? Is often trying to make himself acceptable to God through harsh treatment. Through harsh treatment. By this he thinks he can atone for his sins and show enough contrition to merit God's favor. That's what asceticism means. But self-discipline is motivated by assurance of being accepted. We are accepted by grace. We don't need to earn it. We are accepted. It is by grace and grace alone. Church Bible 
the, the, the Christian self-discipline operates on the platform of knowing God has accepted us on the basis of His grace, not on the basis of what I have done to my body. The motive behind self-discipline is not to gain favor, but to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. So with this as the backdrop, let us look more carefully at Paul's argument in our text. So in these verses, verses 20 to 23, as I always said, and I'm encouraging you over and over again to do, whenever you want to study the Word of God, first read it ten times. Go through that. Read the whole chapter. Read the whole book. You'll have a better understanding of what it is. But once you come up with the text, please give titles. I learned this 25 years ago, maybe, from Dr. Ajit Fernando from, from, from Sri Lanka. Wonderful teacher. That's what, he, that's what he taught us. Give titles. Because when you give titles, it makes more sense. You can only give titles once you understand what the text is all about. So when I went through this, well, many times you can see all my scribble notes and papers here trying to figure this out. I have given two titles. Because for me, what I'm seeing is, Paul first alerts them of their position. So in other words, Paul is saying, remember your position in Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. And in the, in the, in the other verses, 21 to 23, while admonishing the saints of their danger of the heretics, he's saying, reject the heretics, their promotion, what they're trying to promote. You know, you can come up with different titles, trust me. It's not cast on stone. That's the way I see it. Simple. Simple. You know, first, remember your position. Understand who you are in Christ. And once you know who you are in Christ, you can reject what the heretics are trying to do, their promotion. So the first thing in verse 20 is Paul is reminding them who they are and what they possess. So I'm going to come back to verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ. So talking about their position, Paul is drawing their attention to who they are in Christ. That's how he starts. He says two things here, if you look at this passage. It's powerful reminder to them when he says that we have died with Christ. Right? And then you look at the second part of the first, first portion of, the, of this, of this ver verse, from the basic principles of the world. Two things Paul is saying. Let us break it down. First is died with Christ. What does died with Christ mean? So please come along with me, church. The idea of having died with Christ refers to a change in your relationship to the law and sin, and then as well a change toward yourself. When you say you are died with Christ. This change concerning yourself is what Paul meant when he, when he wrote, to the, wrote to the saints in Galatia. Galatia, he says this, I've been crucified with Christ, I've died with Christ, and what happens now? And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what died with Christ means. And he says, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm not living by the worldly standards 
or the man-made rules, but I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered me, liver himself up for me. So Paul further explains that in Romans chapter 6, and those of you who have been through baptism classes, you would have heard this million times, baptism was a picture of ourselves identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's what you find in Romans chapter 6. Since our old self was crucified with him, we're raised up to walk with him in the newness of life. The idea of our old self dying with Christ also changes our relationship to the law and to sin. And that's what Paul continues to explain in Romans chapter 6. The death with Christ frees us from the bondage to the law and to sin. So that they are no longer our masters. The law or the, or is not our master. Sin is not my master. But instead we are under grace. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the righteousness is our master. The righteousness of God is our master. That's what Paul means when he says we are died with Christ. He's reminding the Colossians church, listen guys, it's the righteousness that's your master. It's not the law, it's not the sin. When he said died with Christ. And then he says, let's keep reading, read on. It says from the basic principles of the world. So died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. So about our position, now Paul is reminding, you are not only you are died with Christ, you are dead to the world. That's what Paul is saying here. When he says you are died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, let me explain this to you. This is the same phrase we used in verse number 8 and we went through that in one of my teachings here. This is the result of our dying to sin. The phrase basic principles, in some translations, it says the rudimentary things of the world. That's what it says. The elementary things of the world, maybe ESV, I don't know. He uses the same phrase in Galatians chapter 4, 3 as well, stating that, so also we, listen carefully church, while we were children, meaning what? Before I came to know Christ. While we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Paul is saying that. That is how we were. But here Paul is telling the saints in Colossae, you have died. You have died of the form of the, well, elementary things have gone. So Paul is talking about the, when he talks about the elementary things, he's talking about the foundational religious practices, such as the ceremonial aspects that are part of the means by which the religion is instilled into its adherence at the very beginning. In real life, we train children first, isn't it, in a behavior. Now, we have a little grandson at home. We just tell him, don't do that, even though they don't understand why they shouldn't do it. Don't do it. That's bad. That's danger. Don't go here. We learn how to do things before we learn why we do them. Isn't it? That's how we teach the children. Because they don't have the ability to comprehend the whys. But the what's, they can. Because they get a smack, right? So they'll get it. But if we never learn the why, church, listen carefully, and then act accordingly in understanding we are left 
as children doing things out of habitual repetition and in ignorance, and such ignorance can never bring us to maturity. So the elementary, these elementary and basic principles, which are part of both paganism and Judaism, were presented as the means to godliness. That is how you should be if you want to be godly. But they are actually worldly. That's what Paul is trying to say here. They are human efforts to achieve it. So by no means Paul is suggesting, please church, get this clearly, that such training in rudimentary behavior is wrong. That's not what Paul is saying. But they are to be left behind as maturity develops. That's what Paul is saying. You know, I remember growing up church, I know some of you may have done it. I had a little room, and you know, back home. And in that little room, I had a prayer corner as a little boy. And in this prayer corner, I would light a candle and an incense stick as a small child. I will go there and I'll, I'll sing a chorus. I would read a verse. I would say a prayer. It's a repetitive prayer each day. But this helped me as an infant in faith. Help me. I have a broken ankle. Most of you know that. That's why you don't see me in Olympics. Still, I go to church when I was young. And I go and I stand. Please listen carefully. My thought process was that there are days that I stand on the broken leg because my thought process was that pain I endure would earn favor from the Lord. Let me go. I'm not going to sit. I'm going to stand today and worship the Lord. Yeah, my leg is hurting. That's okay. I'm going to stand and worship because that pain I endure is going to earn favor from the Lord. Some of you have done it. You might look very holy today. Yes. Because I felt a sense of belonging when I did that. When I was young and immature, it helped me in my spiritual formation. But when I came to the true knowledge of the Lord, and I accepted Him as my personal Lord and Savior, now my intimacy with God is different. It is deep in the Word of God with the worship and the kingdom work. It has changed. So as I mature in Christ, I realize that this can only be truly accomplished by the Spirit of God. So now to think of my younger days, if I reflect back on it, that was the rudimentary, elementary principles in my spiritual growth. It was indeed a ritualistic practice. I don't do that anymore when I accepted Christ. In other words... When I died with him, I died to the basic principles of the world. So a mature believer's behavior is directed by the commands and principles and precepts of the word of God. As directed by the Holy Spirit. It's not by these ritualistic things, the basic principles. Church, we may still be doing the same thing, but it will not be for the different reasons, for different reasons, that is the key difference. We may still be doing some of these things. We may still have a prayer closet. We, but it's a different reason. The heart conditions have changed. Understanding have changed. You know, for example, we teach the children not to steal, isn't it? 
I'm hammering on this point because this is the important point that Paul is trying to raise. Most of us are guilty of it. We teach the children don't steal, and when they are little, when you catch them, you can visibly see that they are upset. You tell the child don't steal, and you catch them, they are upset. What was the reason you think they are upset? Do you think they are upset because they were caught? Or they were upset because they were stealing? I can tell you for sure. They were upset because you were caught, they were caught. They knew that stealing was wrong. Why? Because daddy is getting upset. Stealing is wrong because they could not keep that object. I love it, but I can't keep it. Stealing is wrong because they had to return it. And not only return it, we parents will make them say sorry to the person from whom they stole it. In their little mind, stealing was wrong because of the consequences were negative. But when the child matured and came to faith in Christ, they learned that stealing was wrong. Because it was only, not only it's unlawful taking things from other person, which has negative consequences, but more importantly, it was wrong because it displeases the Lord. Because we know the Lord provides everything for us. I know that most of you, at the very beginning, some of the things that you may want to claim on your taxes before you came to know the Lord, you'd be more careful when you're filing taxes now, when you come to know the Lord and your relationship with the Lord. So as you mature in Christ, you do not steal because you love and trust God. You want to please Him. Even as you strive to love others as He loves you, do not steal because it is contrary to love. You're, you don't steal not because of the fear of punishment. Paul questions why they would return to the elementary basic principle as if they were still living in the world. You have already died with Christ. As if they have forgotten who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Let's move on. Now, as you look at this passage again, he says, they were paying attention to these false teachers and submitting themselves to yourselves to regulations. He uses the word regulations here. The actual word here for regulations has the same root word which translates as dogma or decrees or rules. Same meaning. So Paul is telling the saints, if you are not careful, you may give in to this dogma presented by the heretics by your own choice. That's what Paul is telling here. So Paul gives three examples here. Let's go to verse 21. Do not touch. Do not taste, do not handle. Church, when you look at the grammar, we are only used to the past, present, and the future tense. There is another tense called the aorist tense. What does it mean? It means that it does express prohibition of the specific conduct to prevent the action from ever taking place. Not just stop it that has already taken place. It should never take place. So when he uses the word do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, it's in the error's tense. It's not a past tense, it's not a present tense, it's not a future tense. So Paul says here, 
He does not say specifics as to what is, what is advocating. It could be, when you look at it, do not taste, it must be related to food. We are assuming. It doesn't say very clearly. The other decrees could also be related, don't handle it, don't touch it. Maybe he's telling me about jam, maybe. Don't touch it, don't taste it, don't eat it. You know, this escalating, when I did my study, I learned that this escalating prohibition of saying don't touch, don't taste, don't handle is common in legalism. That hit me so hard. Isn't that interesting? That's a very common thing in legalism, it seems. So by being more general, now Paul broadens his example. It can fit wherever, whatever the specifics might be. Let's move on to verse 22. And here Paul talks about not only having spoken about the dogma of the heretics, he's talking about the destiny of the heretics. Look at this. Which all concerned things which perish with the using. The word is perish with the using. So Paul says whatever the specific prohibition were, they were all things that were temporal. That's what Paul is saying. And would be consumed with the using. So in essence, what Paul is saying is the legalist perceives holiness to be related to the physical world when actually it rises out of the spiritual world. Now Jesus taught in Matthew 15, he says, it is not what a man eats or touches that defile him. That's temporal. But Jesus says, but what proceeds out of his heart. The things that concern this Ascetists were of no eternal consequences. They were temporal. In the case of food, they failed to understand that the mosaic dietary restriction would never apply to the Gentiles. They didn't understand that. They never understood that those restrictions had been removed from the Jews as well with the coming of the gospel of Jesus. Now in Acts chapter 10, we studied that in our Bible studies. Church Listen, there's a lesson that we learn. True holiness arises from within a person who has been changed by the Holy Spirit, not by outward conformity to a list of regulations. So not only talking about the, about the, about the destiny, he is also saying in, verse, in, the, in the same verse, the latter part he says, as to the source of these decrees, this accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. They are not from God. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, guys, these teachings that you are hearing, they are not from God. They are from man. And in 1 Timothy 4, Paul, Paul says that requiring the abstaining from food items is a doctrine from demons. That's what Paul is writing when he wrote to Timothy. So why then would you be paying attention to such things? Church, there's a big lesson, bigger lesson to learn from here. So then, the, the, the do's and don'ts. How do I know what to do and what not to do? That's a very valid question to ask. Even about churches. Take seekers, for example. How do I, how do, I do what to do and what not to do? Is it man-made or is it God's command? 
everything in the covenant. This is what you should realize, church. This is a practical application. Everything in the covenant of the church must be in strict accordance with the scriptures themselves. It must be. You know, there are copies of the covenant available. You can, as you go through that, I would encourage you to go into the website and check it out. You will see that every statement that we make pertaining to the covenant or the beliefs are supported by the word of God, by the, by the references to the scriptures. So that's the first thing we should know, that it must be in strict accordance with the scriptures. And second thing is, submission to such covenant must be done from the correct heart. Your heart must be right when you submit. Here's one theologian said this way. If the church covenant is looked to as the rules for the church, then it will be treated as such, quickly degenerate into submission to man-made rules instead of submission to God. You know, that's why the Lord spoke about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. In the Old Testament, it's all about the letter of the law. When Jesus came, it's about the spirit of the law. What is the intent of your heart? So we are called to know and submit themselves to the commandments and teachings of God, not of men. Church, every time you should be like the Bereans and you must be diligent and careful to examine when you go back home and see whether whatever that you hear is in line with the word of God. Otherwise, don't accept it. You must make sure that whatever is taught from this pulpit in a Sunday school class or in a Bible study or in a prayer group or in a discipleship is what the scriptures say. And not an adulteration of perversion or a substitution by man. I would encourage you to do that. So I just want to, I know that some of you may have seen this, but I just, I'm just, I know you can't read this. Don't worry reading it. The reason I put that is you'll find it in our website. I'm only trying to get one point across here. This is our set of beliefs, and the list goes on. Every statement that is made, there's a scriptural references we have made. I just want, I don't want you to take something when it is not the scripture. It, if it is man-made, reject it. Is it God's command? So having spoken of the dogma and the heretics and their destiny, now finally in verse 23, bear with me. I need, I need verse 23, please. Hmm. Sorry, just bear with me, please. No, it's not staying there. Boy, this is interesting. All right. You have your Bibles. That's wonderful. Verse 23. Not 20, 23 is what I wanted. Hmm, hmm. I'm going to try it one more time. Oh, go on back. Okay, that's fine. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Please read this, see this, but that, that's when you'll be able to grasp it. Paul says all these things, the downfall of this teaching, 
These have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. But they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. For me, there are five things, five failures Paul is showing here. Number one, they have an appearance of wisdom. There's a pretense. Don't be fooled by that. Number two, they are self-imposed religion. They are man-made. Number three, they demonstrate false humility. These people are saying, this, no, this is a pious, this is a godly thing. No, it's a false humility. And then you say they treat their bodies harshly. Neglect of the body means they treat their body harshly. That's what asceticism is all about. And then he says, they do not have any power or our desires. They will not help you come over your sins. You know, church, ascetics have high, the highest admiration for those who took vows of celibacy or poverty or absolute obedience to those who gave themselves excessive self-punishments. Have you heard the term pillar saints? They are saints who go and sit on the pillars. They're trying to get access to heaven. They spend time with God. Or the martyrs of the desert. They give the highest admiration, highest respect. You know what, church? We do that too. But in the eyes of God, as He looks down, He's not looking at the external. He's looking at the internal. That's what Paul is talking about here. So Paul has made chapters of Colossians. We are bringing close to methods to achieve spirituality, peace and piety. But no works or effort of man can achieve them. That's what Paul says in the first two chapters. Because man is dead spiritually, at enmity with his creator, and all his efforts at righteousness are as filthy rags before God. Jesus Christ is superior to all religions. Only, this is what Paul is saying, through being justified by faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ can a person be made spiritually alive. He can gain peace with God and he'll have the indwelling Holy Spirit bring about righteous living. So one last slide, I don't know if I can get it to the last slide. Son, can you click one more time, please? If, yeah, one more time. Perfect, we got it. This is how I broke this chapter down. So Paul is reminding us today. You died with Christ. All of you. Because of that, you are dead to the world. Paul is saying. So no matter what the heretical teaching come your way, reject it. Reject their promotion because it's their dogma, their rules they are bringing in. Their destiny ends with this world. It's, it's going to perish. That's not eternal. And their downfall is that those dogmatic teaching of instructions are not going to help you overcome your sin. Remember, 
your position. Died with Christ. Dead to the world.